We'll hear argument first this morning in case 075439, Bays v. Reese. Mr. Borelli. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Kentucky's lethal injection procedures pose a danger of cruelly inhumane executions. If the first drug in the three-drug sequence, the anesthetic thiopental, is not effectively administered to the executed inmate, then the second drug, pancuronium, will induce a terrifying conscious paralysis and suffocation, and the third drug, potassium chloride, will inflict an excruciating burning pain as it courses through the veins. Mr. Verrilli, your argument is based on improper administration of the protocol. You, you agree that if the protocol is properly followed, the, there's no risk of pain? I disagree with that, respectfully, Mr. Chief Justice. The, the, the protocol simply does not address several key steps where risks can arise. And beyond that, the protocols, and I think this is critically important, the protocols, procedures for monitoring to assure that the inmate is adequately anesthetized are practically non-existent. I thought your, your expert, I'm looking at page 493 to 494 of the Joint Appendix, agreed that if the two grams of sodium pentothal is properly administered, the way he put it, in virtually every case there would be a humane death. That is true, but there, there can be no guarantee that it will be properly administered, and that is because even in clinical settings, there are always there is always the potential for difficulty which manifests itself in actual problems, for example, in the setting of an IV. Well, if it were properly administered, would you have a case here? But let's assume 100 percent cases are properly administered. If there were a way to guarantee that the procedure worked every time, then we would not no, have no, my substantial risk. Let's but assume hypothetically, and we know this isn't true, that 100 percent of the time it's properly administered. Then do you have an argument to present to the Court? Well, if the it is, and I apologize for this, but for clarifying, if the it is, if 100 percent of the time the dose of anesthetic is properly administered into the condemned inmate, then we don't have a significant risk. Of course, that is not what the record in this case establishes. The record establishes the contrary. There is, there, you cannot assure that there's going to be a guarantee of, of, of successful administration of the anesthetic, and that is why the monitoring part of the process is so critical. But would you, would the monitoring suffice? In other words, you started out by saying there's no way that it can be administered and assure 100 percent against risk. So it would be helpful if you clarified, yes, there is a way of monitoring adequately and tell us what that would be, or no, there is no way. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. I think we have tried to suggest in our brief that there is a way to monitor effectively, even with the three-drug protocol. It's challenging. The key component of that is that one needs a person trained in monitoring anesthetic depth to participate in the process. Now, it would be a medical doctor, and uh, medical doctors, uh, uh, according to the Code of Ethics of the uh, American Medical Association, can't participate. Well, Your Honor, and of course, that's why there's another practical alternative here which solves that problem, which is the single dose of barbiturate, which does not require the participation of a medically trained professional. Well, that seems to be a big part of your argument, but it doesn't appear that that argument was raised at all in the Kentucky courts. And it seems that there is virtually nothing in the record of this case that shows that that's practical or that it's preferable to the three-drug protocol. It may well be, but without anything in the record of this case, how could we hold that the three-drug protocol is unconstitutional? Well, if, if I may, Justice Alito, I do think, uh, and I'd like to provide the references where it is raised, and, uh, and then the evidentiary references that support uh, Where was it argument. raised? The, the, the citations in the brief that was submitted by your co-counsel are inaccurate to show that it was raised in the Kentucky well, courts. At, at page 684 of the Joint Appendix, the, uh, this is the trial brief, the brief raised in the trial court. One assertion made there is that an alternative chemical or combination of chemicals that poses less risk of unnecessary pain and suffering 
during an execution exists. You know, that's, the, that's the trial court. And you think that just the word, an alternative chemical poses less risk, is sufficient to raise the argument that the three-judge protocol is unconstitutional because a single-judge judge drug protocol involving thiopentol yes. is preferable? And that then, one word? And then, no, and then later at page 701, the brief argues that there are non-painful ways of stopping the heart. What are they? That is, I, I was I, — I can't find — what should I read? That is, I've read the studies. I, I read that Lancet study, which seemed to me the own re, the referee for it, said it wasn't any good. The, uh, and I read the, the Zimmer's study, and I found in there an amazing sentence to me, which says that the Netherlands Euthanasia Task Force concluded it is not possible to administer so much of it that a lethal effect is guaranteed. They're talking about thiopental. Uh, so so I'm, I'm left at sea. Uh, I understand your contention. You claim that this is somehow more painful than some other method. But which? Well, and what's the evidence for that? The, what do I read to find it? The thiopental is a barbiturate. By definition, will inflict death painlessly. The record in this case establishes each expert, the petitioner's expert and respondent's expert, testified that it is guaranteed at the three-gram dose to cause death. That's what they're, they're, they're giving, a three-gram dose. I take it. And if or two grams or three grams, I thought it was three grams here. And uh, I ended up thinking, of course there's a risk of human error. There's a risk of human error generally where you're talking about the death penalty. And this may be one extra problem, one serious additional problem. But the question here is, can we say that there's a more serious problem here than with other execution methods? I've read the studies. What else should I read? Well, I think the, the, the record references, which the, I think the record pretty clearly establishes, Your Honor, that death is certain to occur through the use of thiopental at, at the three-gram dose. What, what do we and do with the euthanasia? Instead of talking, I looked, I found it more important to look at what they do with euthanasia than to look at what they do with animals, frankly. And... I was therefore taken aback with the sentence I just read to you. Yes. What am I supposed to do about that? Well, I, I, I think to refer instead to the expert testimony in this case, which says that death is certain to occur, and in addition, the medical testimony in this case that it is certain to occur in a very few minutes. Those are the transcript references that we provided at page 18 of the reply brief. That method has never been tried, correct? Well, it has never been tried on humans, that is correct. It, it is — Do we know whether there are risks of pain accompanying that method? I think you do, Mr. Chief Justice, because by definition, barbiturates cannot inflict pain and do not The record pain. establishes that the second drug that's used here is used to prevent involuntary muscle contractions. Um, uh, that would not be — there wouldn't be a safeguard against that under the one-drug protocol, I take it. Well, it, y yes, there would, Mr. Chief Justice, because the reality is that thiopental and other barbiturates are anticonvulsants. Their, their point is to, among other things, to suppress any involuntary muscle you, movement. Do you agree that that is an appropriate uh, uh, problem to be addressed by the execution protocol? that they should uh, try to reduce the likelihood of involuntary muscle contractions? No, because to the extent that the, the reason that they're offering to do it is because of the potential for discomfort that it may cause the audience, given the risk that the I thought they are, one of their reasons was that it would uh, uh, enhance the dignity not only of the procedure as a whole, but also to the condemned. But I understand that, Mr. Chief Justice, but given the extent to which it increases the risk that, that there can be ineffective anesthesia and it can go undetected, it doesn't seem to us to be an argument of sufficient force to, to justify using it despite that risk, particularly when it seems to us the issue of dignity can be addressed by, by communication 
with the audience. What, what do we do with the, uh, if you prevail here and the next case is brought by someone subject to the single drug protocol and their claim is, look, this has never been tried. Uh, we do know uh, uh, that there's a chance that it would cause muscle contractions that would make my death undignified. It will certainly extend how long it takes to die. So I'm subject to a lingering death, um, and the more humane protocol would be the three-drug protocol. Well, I think with respect to the lingering death point, I, I, I think what this Court's cases are talking about is the consciousness of lingering death and the torture that that imposes, which you wouldn't have, of course, in this situation. I don't think there is a credible argument that the use of a barbiturate alone could inflict pain. They do not inflict any pain. Now, of course, there are possibilities of maladministration, but not maladministration of a one-drug protocol that results in any pain, and therefore there's just not a credible Eighth Amendment argument. It seems to me that it could be cruel and unusual punishment because there is no pain. Mr. Bruni, I think that your main argument in this case, I mean, the barbiturate only seemed to have come up rather late in the day, as Justice Alito pointed out. But your main argument seemed to be that the controls were inadequate. So you were beginning to say what controls would be necessary to render this procedure constitutional. And one, you said, train personnel to monitor the the flow. The monitor for anesthetic, to ensure that anesthetic yes. depth has been achieved and maintained. And one is correct. two questions. Who would the trained personnel be? And the second question, what would be the measures that they would employ? The, the trained personnel could be a physician, a nurse, or anyone trained by them adequately in this process. What do we do about the point, the point that the doctors uh, or the nurses say it's unethical to help with an execution. I mean, if we're going to talk about the constitutionality of the death penalty per se, that isn't raised in this case. And what the other side says is, well, you're just trying to do this by the back door, insist upon a procedure that can't be used. Well, I think the, the one point of the one-drug protocol, of course, is to demonstrate that we're not doing that. Beyond that, it seems to me that the State can't have it both ways with respect to the, the uh, issue of the participation of, of medically trained personnel. On the one hand, they cannot say that we have qualified medically able personnel participating in this process, and that's our guarantee of its efficacy, and on the other hand, say that a requirement of having trained, qualified personnel participate is impossible, and they do say that. For example, the EMTs who participate in Kentucky are under the same ethical set of issues as, as doctors are. Would you use those EMTs? Would they be qualified? Would the team that inserts the IV, would that team be qualified. With additional training, they could be qualified. They aren't qualified by virtue of their training to become EMTs. They would have to be additionally trained. Mr. Verrilli, are we in the, uh, the, the difficult position in, in hearing your, your answers that, in effect, we're being asked to make findings of fact about the availability of medical personnel and the feasibility of training and so on that the trial court never made because it didn't think it had to make a comparative analysis here so that if, in fact, the comparative analysis is crucial to the case, we should send the thing back for fact-finding by a trial judge rather than trying to do it here. Should, well, should we remand if we accept your argument? It is true, Justice Souter, that the trial court did not make factual findings on a whole range of issues with respect to the difficulties of constituting the proper dose, the risk of catheter placement, the risk of blowouts, the risk of mixing up syringes, and the adequacy of the monitoring. And I agree, Your Honor, that it did so because it didn't believe that that was particularly relevant to the issue before it. Uh, and that's the, the, the basis of our disagreement with respect to the legal test. Now, it is, it is our position that the record is sufficiently clear and sufficiently uncontradicted on the key points, with, particularly with respect to monitoring, that the Court would not have to remand, but it certainly would be a reasonable thing to do in view of the deficiencies in the actual well, finding. Well, you interrupted, and, and you gave Justice Ginsburg, you said you have two, two problems of, uh, for monitoring. And she asked you, who would do this and what measures would they use? And you right. never were able to get to right. the second. With respect to the second, it's a combination. 
the, they would use the available equipment, EKG and blood pressure cuff, which is, which is the standard practice used for monitoring for unconsciousness. But in addition, uh, as the expert testimony in the case established, you have to have close vi- uh, close visual observation by the trained person. Well, as to the cuff, the, uh, uh, I, I thought the record was rather clear that it is just not used at these low blood pressure levels. No, I don't think so, Justice Kennedy. There was some question about whether the third device, the BIS monitor, is used. But, but the, blood, the, the, the tracking of blood pressure is a critical way of monitoring for unconsciousness, as is the EKG. Mr. Verrilli, this is, this is uh, an execution, not surgery. The other side contends that you need to monitor the depth of, of the unconsciousness when you expect to bring the person back. Do not want uh, uh, harm to occur to the person. But they assert that to, to know whether the person is unconscious or not, all it takes is a slap in the face and shaking the person. Well, uh, now, is, is, of course, that, Justice Scalia, their contention. there is no slap in the face. There is no shaking the person. There's, there's no testing of that kind whatsoever under the Kentucky Protocol. So even under that understanding, which we don't think is correct, that uh, we don't have that here, and that's one of the problems. All there is is visual observation by an untrained warden and an untrained deputy warden who have testified in this case that they don't know what to look for to determine whether somebody is conscious or unconscious. With regard to the, to the trial court's failure to make findings about the availability of people to do this and about the, uh, the possibility of, uh, of practical possibility of uh, more effective and less painful drugs, uh, was that a failure to ignore evidence that you produced? Yes. Did, did you introduce evidence to show that, that indeed, uh, medically trained personnel were re- readily available to do the things you said? I, I don't think we introduced evidence that medically trained personnel were readily available, but we, but we did introduce evidence about what needed to be done. And, of course, as I said, Kentucky, like the, the other states, have touted their ability to bring medically qualified personnel to bear to run this process. And. So I, I do think I'm very reluctant to send it back to the trial court so we can have a, a nationwide cessation of all executions while the trial court finishes its work and then it goes to another appeal to the to, to the state Supreme Court and ultimately we're looking at years. Uh, I understand that, Your Honor, and that's why I suggested that to happen. That's why I suggested that there is that this case can be decided on the basis of the record here because the uh, the undisputed expert testimony on these key issues shows the deficiencies in the protocol. If may I ask you another question? May may I ask you another question about the state of the evidence? And it it really goes to an understanding of your position that was discussed a little bit earlier about the preferability of simply a, a arbitrary dose as opposed to the, the three-drug three drug combination. Uh, you said a moment ago uh, that the evidence was, and I think it was uh, undisputed evidence, that three grams of the barbiturate actually used would be sufficient to cause death. Is, is that correct? That's correct. And, well, and that was undisputed? Each, each side's expert testified to precisely the same thing, that okay. three grams was certain to cause death. So that if the current three-gram dosage were used and the second and third drugs were not administered, death would occur based on the undisputed evidence in this case. The record establishes that death is certain. Secondly, my understand, my recollection is that uh, in, in a couple of places in your brief, one at least, you referred to the preferability of administering a, and I think the term was massive dose of barbiturate, which I took to mean more than the three grams. Is, is, is that what you meant? No, three, three grams is a massive that dose. That is the massive but dose. If, if one had any doubt about the, the certainty of the effect of causing death, one could always just increase the dose. But the, but the is there any evidence in the record uh, about what the enhanced dose would appropriately be if you decided or if, if, if a protocol author decided that there would be no chance whatsoever that death would not occur and the amount should be greater than three grams. Was there any evidence in the record about how much there ought to be if you were going to go above three grams? I'm not sure there's anything in the record, Your Honor. There is 
discussion in the amicus briefs about some other jurisdictions that have gone as high as five grams. And the government has the told States, us they, they right. do. Right. In the United the States, it's as high as five grams. You're, you have protections so. that would apply even to your single drug protocol. You tell us that one reason this uh, challenge protocol doesn't work is because people will mis- mix the uh, drugs in the wrong way, including the sodium pentothal. That objection would still be there if we adopted your alternative, wouldn't it? No, Mr. Chief Justice, because, as I tried to say earlier, even if there is maladministration, error I'm focusing kind, specifically okay. on the mixing yes. of the drug. Even the if mixing of the sodium pentothal would be undertaken under the Kentucky procedure under, and under your proposed alternative. That's correct? correct. But the difference is, if there's an error at that stage in the process and the execution proceeds, there may be a problem that needs to be fixed, but it will not be a problem that causes any pain. And that's the critical difference, because if it doesn't cause really pain, it can't be a cruel and unusual we, we punishment. Have, we have been discussing this as though, as though that is a constitutional requirement. Where, where, where does that come from, that, that you, you must find the, the method of execution that causes the least pain? We, we have approved electrocution. We have approved death by firing squad. I expect both of those have more possibilities of painful death than the, than the, uh, the protocol here. Where, where, well, I, where does this come from, that, uh, uh, that in, in the, in the uh, execution of, a, of a, a person who has been convicted of, uh, of killing people, uh, we, we must choose the least painful method possible? Is, is that somewhere in our Constitution? We don't make the argument that, that uh, the states are required to choose the least painful method possible. Our standard is grounded in three, uh, I think, extremely solid, po- well-established points of Eighth Amendment doctrine. The first one is this. The core concern of the Eighth Amendment at the time of its founding, of course, was precisely the question of whether the carrying out of death sentences would inflict torturous death. So we're at the core of the historic no, no, concern. No, I no, don't, I don't agree with that. The, the concern was with torture, which is the intentional infliction of pain. Now, these states, uh, the three-quarters of the states that have the death penalty, all except one of whom use this method of execution, they haven't set out to inflict pain. To the contrary, they've introduced it presumably because they, indeed, think it's a more humane way, although not one that is free of all risk. The second principle, Your Honor, is that this Court's cases, including the ones that Your Honor averted to, have said that the standard is whether the means of execution inflicts unnecessary pain. No. And unnecessary and wanton. Unnecessary and wanton infliction of pain. Well, the, 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 with all due respect, Wilkerson and Kemmler say okay. unnecessary pain. Well, this Weber says then, unnecessary Then you're changing pain. your position. You and said, you, you just said earlier that we didn't have to find the least no, painful way. That's correct. If you're not using the least painful way, you are inflicting unnecessary pain, aren't you? No, Justice Scalia, our, yes, because, right. Justice Scalia, our position is the pain that is inflicted here when this goes wrong is torturous, excruciating pain under any definition. We're not talking about a slight increment of difference. We're talking about the infliction of torturous pain. But is now, it the, your position that every form of execution that has ever been used in, in the United States, if, if it were to be used today, would violate the Eighth Amendment? No. I think well, which, it, which form that's been used at some time in, in an execution? Well, I think would be, would one would have to violate. subject it to the test that we are advocating, which is whether it would, if whether there is a risk of torturous pain. Hanging certainly would, right? Well, it would have to be subjected to the test. What, if what there was a risk is, of torturous pain, is that a hard pain. question? Is that a hard question? Whether hanging would, and whether there, whether you had experts who, who understood the drop weight, uh, you know, that, that was enough that it would break the neck? And, if and, if and there's not. a risk of torturous pain and if there are readily available alternatives that could obviate the risk, then any significant risk. Hanging's any no good. What about electrocution? Risk, well, it would depend. The argument about electrocution, Justice Scalia, is, is whether or not it is painless. And that, that, that was its point when it was enacted, that it would be a painless form of death. It has, that, to, be, it has to be painless. It does not, but that, was, but that was its point. And I think one would have to subject it to the, to the test and see whether it inflicts severe pain that is readily avoidable by, by an alternative. You have no doubt that the three-judge protocol that Kentucky is using violates the Eighth Amendment, but you really cannot 
express a judgment about any of the other methods that has ever been used? Well, well electrocution may well, but it would depend, again, Your Honor, if it, you know, if, if it could be established that it was painless, that there wasn't a risk that it could go wrong in a way that afflicted excruciating pain, then it would be upheld. If it couldn't, it wouldn't. And, you know, it does seem a serious question. Obviously, the Court granted certiorari to consider it a few times ago. Um, but but that, that would be the test, the mode of analysis here. And I, and I don't think you'd have to show it's unusual, not, not, not painless. I mean, it's cruel and unusual is what we're talking about. But it about. seems to there, me there's, there's no painless requirement the, in there. The, there is an unnecessary pain requirement. There is also, Justice Scalia, uh, and I think where, where does that unnecessary pain requirement come from? From this Court's cases. Dictum in our cases, right? Yes, it's, it comes from this Court's cases. Dictum, and it, dictum in our cases. Well, it, it seems to me it's more than that, and, and, and Panetti is one case that shows it. Because there's a case in which the Eighth Amendment forbids the execution of a person who was insane at the time of execution. In that situation, there is no intent on the part of the people carrying out the execution to, to inflict cruel and unusual punishment. This Court didn't require intent in Panetti. In fact, it said something quite different. So really the polar opposite. It said that the states had to have in place procedures to ensure that there wasn't an arbitrary infliction of the death penalty in that circumstance without any requirement of intent. The Greg Woodson Lockett cases don't have a requirement of intent. And the Kemmler and, and Wilkinson cases don't have a requirement of intent in, in them either. And with respect to the unusual character of it, is drawing from the dictionary definitions that Your Honor uh, posed in the, in the Harmline case. Um, this is unusual in precisely that way in that it is, if Your Honor will just bear with me, it is such as does not occur in ordinary practice. So I do think it is unusual in that sense. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time, if I may. Thank you, Mr. Verrilli. Angler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Mr. Verrilli and I agree that if the first drug is properly administered, there will be a painless death. It is only if the first drug is not properly administered that there is any possible constitutional argument in this, in this case. But, but do you also agree with the counter-proposition that if it is not properly administered, there is some risk of excruciating pain? Yes. Yeah. And do you agree that if that risk was, say, uh, uh, occurred in every case that it would violate the uh, Eighth Amendment? Yes. Because the administration of the first drug is so important, it is important to focus on the safeguards Kentucky has in place to make sure that the first drug is properly administered. Contrary to what Mr. Verrilli has suggested, Kentucky has excellent safeguards in place. Let me start with who, it, who puts in the IV line, which is the most critical step in the process. Kentucky uses what is probably literally the best qualified human being in the Commonwealth of Kentucky to place the IV lines. It uses a phlebotomist who, in her daily job, works with the prison population. So the problems, the prison population. I take it this is obvious, but I wondered when I went through the brief. I assume a phlebot this phlebotomist is not an MD. Correct. Yeah. What, what is the training? I mean, a phlebotomist refers to somebody who works with veins, I take it. But she, she plays that. What is the training? The, the, the training is a certain amount of, of learning. Uh, followed by on-the-job experience. This person places 30 needles a day in the prison population. And at page 273 of the Joint Appendix, it points out that she works in her daily job with the prison population. So what she's used to for many years of working with the prison population is the kinds of problems of compromised veins we have in the inmate population specifically. So it's somebody like the, the Red Cross worker who puts in the, 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 the needle when somebody donates blood? And no, no, Your Honor. It's someone like the person who inserts an IV in a hospital. Mm -hmm. The experts in this case all agreed that in a hospital setting, IVs are not inserted by medical doctors. They're inserted by phlebotomists. That's what they do. They teach medical residents how to insert IVs because doctors in training don't know how to do this. And it's, it's what's somewhat derisively referred to as scut work in a hospital Mi setting. Mr. Englund, I thought that there really wasn't a serious question about who inserts the IV, that those are trained people. But the point that was highlighted was that the people who control the flow into the IV connection, that those people have no training, the ones that are called executioners, the ones who operate the, what is it, the syringe. And, Your Honor, Kentucky has, has safeguards in place to make sure that the inmate is 
asleep before the second and third drugs are given. Now, with respect to those people's training, it's not accurate that they have no training. Kentucky has had one execution in, in, since 1998, since it adopted lethal injection, one execution altogether by lethal injection. It's had 100 practice sessions. Kentucky requires monthly practice sessions every month by the execution team because it is very concerned about it right. Now, with respect to, to pushing the IV, those are people who, whose training is participation in the practice sessions. But to make sure that the first drug has had its intended effect, the warden and the deputy warden are in the execution chamber. They are literally right on top of the inmate. It's suggested in the briefs that they are feet away. That's not accurate. But the they also are, are not away. trained people. And my, the, the, what seems puzzling to me is, is the state has made an effort to make sure that the people on the team that inserts the IV, that those are well-trained professional people. But then apparently they leave the room so that once the IV is inserted, there is no professional person that has any further part. That, that's, that's, to say they leave the room is accurate, but the suggestion that they have no further part is misleading. They go into the next room, they watch through a one-way mirror, carefully watching to make sure nothing has gone wrong. They're in close proximity to the inmate, and they're watching. Now, with respect to the warden and the deputy warden, it's been suggested they don't know what to look for. That's false. The record shows otherwise. The main problem in, in the executions that have gone wrong, the main problem is an IV goes into tissue instead of the vein. If that happens, Dr. Dershowitz testified, pages 600 to 601 of the Joint Appendix, the inmate would be awake and screaming. The warden and the deputy warden know how to tell the difference between someone whose eyes have closed and who seems to have gone to sleep and someone who is awake and screaming. It's not just Dr. Dershowitz. Dr. Haas and Dr. Highland, pages 353 and 386 of the Joint Appendix, also testified that this would be clear. Now, Mr. Verrilli says, use a blood pressure monitor as a safeguard. Justice Kennedy said, doesn't the record show that that's not of any use at very low blood pressures? And Justice Kennedy is exactly correct at page 578 of the Joint Appendix. Dr. Dershowitz testified that a blood pressure cuff simply would have no usefulness in monitoring at this level of uh, introduction of the barbiturate. Uh, Mr. Verrilli has mentioned the one-drug protocol at some length this morning and has said it is certain to cause death if three grams of sodium thiopental are administered. His expert, Dr. Heath, page 499 of the Joint Appendix, was asked, let's assume that you don't take any other measures and gave a three-gram dose of sodium thiopental. What would you expect to happen? I'd expect the blood pressure to drop. Would that kill them? No, I wouldn't expect it to cause death. Yes, but isn't it clear that a five-gram uh, admi uh, administration of that drug would be fatal? No, Your Honor. There is nothing in this record. I know it's not in the record, but it's in this, in this document that we received the last few days, this long deposition of Dr. Dershowitz. The, Justice Stevens, let, let me be very precise in this answer if I can. What is clear is that a rapidly administered three- or five-gram dose of a barbiturate would cause death in normal circumstances. And if it doesn't, you could just administer more of the drug and then it would. That's, that's problematic, actually. I, this is all way outside the record. But I my understand. Under, my understanding is that the human body can't take more than a certain amount of the barbiturate, so it actually becomes problematic to go past five grams, which is why nobody goes higher than five Would grams. you contend that, two, that the second uh, drug in the three-judge protocol is necessary in order to make the execution effective? No, not, not effective. The Dig justification is the one the Chief Justice described. Correct. It, and you don't want to have unpleasant uh, uh, appearance of death at the time. Well, it's more than unpleasant appearance of death, Your Honor. Well, what it's is deeply the disturbing. What, what is the justification for the second drug when it does, that is the drug that creates the risk of excruciating pain? That's the drug that creates the risk of excruciating pain, if and only if the first drug is improperly right, administered. Right, I understand that. And the justification is many safeguards are in place to make sure the first drug is properly administered so it doesn't create any real risk. And second, it does bring about a more dignified death, dignified for the inmate, dignified for the witnesses. It, it's not just the, the dignity of the process outweighs the risk of excruciating pain. No, Your Honor. No. Um, well, the does, and the risk of excruciating pain outweigh the risk of an undignified death? A, a, a substantial risk of excruciating pain? 
a substantial risk of, of wanting well, even a minimal pain, risk. We would, if, we would, if everyone who goes through the process knows there's some risk of excruciating pain that could be avoided by a single drug protocol, would he prefer to say, I want to die in a dignified way? Your Honor, the, if, if I may answer your question a little bit indirectly, that risk cannot be that ri the risk of pain can be avoided by a single drug protocol, but there's not a certain death with a one drug protocol. It's also a very, it takes a very long time to die with a one-drug protocol. Well, so, it's a very long time. Ten minutes? Again, Your Honor, this is way outside the record. This is what this they do with animals. Well, what, what Dr. Dershowitz? They use a single-drug protocol for animals because it's more humane than the three-drug protocol. No, no. And they use a single drug with animals because that is the tradition the American Veterinary, Veterinary Medical Association has come up with, using somewhat different considerations. Well, isn't it required by order. Kentucky law? The use of, of pancromian bromide or any uh, neuromuscular blocking agent, any paralytic, is barred by Kentucky law as in the law of many Okay, so that it's something, something more is involved than, than merely veterinary practice. In the veterinary setting, someone, some appropriate policymaker has made the decision that what they perceive as risks uh, Right. But in the, the in, the setting, in the setting of Kentucky law, the legislature of Kentucky has said, we're going to make this a legal requirement. And I assume they had some reason for it, other than the fact that vets do it that way. Well, uh, does the Kentucky law do anything other than adopt the uh, uh, AVMA guidelines? Uh, all the Kentucky do law does is forbid the use of a neuromuscular blocking agent in euthanizing animals. And that's there's no record on this, but presumably that's because veterinarians told the state legislature that was a good idea. But why was it necessary to pass a law if the standard veterinary practice is not to use it? I mean, we're, uh, I'm obviously trying to get to the to, to what evidence we have here for for a, a finding somewhere that we can take into consideration that there is a comparative benefit uh, under, the, under the veterinary practice as, as distinct from the, the protocol that has, has been devised. So isn't it reasonable to suppose that the Kentucky legislature made some kind of a, a finding, came to some kind of a conclusion, that in fact there was something deleterious uh, about using the second drug? That much is reasonable. Okay. What's deleterious about using the second drug, we all agree, is that if the first drug is maladministered, it can cause pain. If the first drug is not maladministered, no pain. No pain in humans, no pain in animals. The judgment was made, weighing the costs and benefits in the veterinary context, not to use the second drug. The judgment has been made by everyone who has looked at this in the, in the death penalty context to use the second drug. Yeah, the only cost that I — correct me if I'm wrong, but the only cost that you have identified uh, in, in using the one drug only are, number one, the appearance cost, which you, you equated with, with dignity uh, in your response to Justice Stevens, and number two, the possibility, uh, and, and I don't know what, how strong a possibility, but the possibility that the one drug would not work. Is, is there any other cost in using one drug? Yes, the length of time it takes to die. And, and I, I take it you don't have a figure for that. Justice Stevens well, said 10 minutes, and uh, I don't think you had a clear answer one way or the other as to whether it was likely to be more. If you go outside the record of this case, in which this argument wasn't even raised say, below, doing go into the Harbison record, the lodging in yeah. recent days, I believe Dr. Dershowitz testified he would expect it to take 30 minutes. And 30 minutes is against some risk of excruciating pain. Uh, is that, uh, in effect, uh, is, is it reasonable to say 30 minutes is too long? Depends on how large the risk of excruciating pain is. Here, there is, there is very little is, evidence. Is, is your point pain. that there is simply no quantification of what that risk is? No, that, that, is, that is one of my points, but that's not my whole point, Justice. Okay, Sir. what's your third point? Uh, take a look at the... I'm speaking rhetorically, one can take a look at the list of so-called botched executions in this country, the appendix to Professor Denno's Law Review article, the Death Penalty Information Center website. The so-called botched executions aren't executions in which there was pain. They are executions in which, in the overwhelming majority, one of three things happened. It took a long time to find a vein, and that's the only reason they say it was botched. Or the inmate showed muscle movements the exact same thing the pancuronium bromide prevents, and with no evidence whatsoever that there was any pain accompanying those muscle movements, 
the advocates on the other side suggest that those are botched executions, or somebody made a human error and didn't get the vein properly. Those are the cases like the Clark execution in Ohio where the man said, it's not working. Well, you don't need medical training to tell when the guy says it's not working that it hasn't gone into the vein. So the nub of your argument really is that they have not made a case or they do not have a record case uh, for any significant likelihood of excruciating pain. That's, that's correct beyond the absolute bare minimum likelihood that is inherent in any process that involves human beings. They argue the mixing of the drugs is a problem. There's a finding of fact to the contrary by the district court, well supported by evidence. They argue that the placing of the IVs is a problem. Kentucky really does have the best qualified person in the state to place the IVs. They argue that there's a risk because the people watching don't know what to look for. All they need to look for is swelling, whether the person is awake. That's noticeable to a lay observer. They argue that the personnel monitoring the execution are not sufficiently close. It's just false. The warden is inches away. That's the testimony of page 211 and 12. It's still unclear why they should make such an effort to get trained personnel in the first instance. And then even if they're in their next room, why isn't — why do they deliberately pick non-professional people to both administer the drugs and — to check the, the inmate for consciousness. There are reasons for that, Justice Ginsburg. What are the reasons? To administer the drugs, the only trained personnel, the only so-called trained personnel, are the people who are barred by the AMA ethics requirements and by Kentucky law from, from administering the drugs, doctors and nurses. As to but, — But you have that expert team, and it seems that they would be preferable to executioners who have no professional qualification. The expert team, the people who are trained, the people who have had 100 practice sessions since the last execution, are the people who administer the drugs. Uh, I mean the people who administer the — who place the IV line. They have, they have zero expertise in pushing drugs. They have expertise in placing the line. They have expertise in finding a vein. They have no more experience pushing drugs than the person who pushes the drugs. Mr. Engel, can I ask you a rather basic question? Uh, do you think the constitutionality of the three-judge protocol itself is at issue in this case, or merely the question whether Kentucky has done an adequate job of using that protocol? Well, I think what's properly before the Court is only the latter question, but obviously so that if really you just decide this on the ground, and, and the, the record is very persuasive in your favor, I have to acknowledge. But if we decide the fact that Kentucky is doing an adequate job of administering this protocol, that would leave open the question whether the basic use of this second drug, which does nothing but avoid unpleasantness of her visitors, is itself constitutional. That well, we have to wait for another case to decide that, will we? Uh, I the Court could write an opinion either way, obviously. The, there is a good reason to hold that the use of the second drug is permissible. Because I, to be very honest with you, I think there, you're, you make a very strong case on the administration in Kentucky on the record in this case. But I am terribly troubled by the fact that the second drug is what seems to cause all the risk of excruciating pain and seems to be almost totally unnecessary in terms of any rational basis for requiring well, Your Honor, But that we're not going to be able to decide today. I petitioner's own brief acknowledges that the three-drug protocol can be applied constitutionally. Judge Fogel and I understand it can be applied, so and it may have been in this very case. It may be. But that leaves open a, a whole other uh, area of litigation is what, what troubles me. Every state that has publicly said what it uses, it uses the three-drug protocol. It would be very strange to hold that that is cruel and unusual punishment. But, but no legislature has ever required it, as I understand. No, no, uh, 14 legislatures have required it. The three-judge protocol? The three-drug protocol, I'm yes. Sorry. Justice Ginsburg, back to your question. There is a reason why the IV team members leave the room. The curtains are opened after the IVs are placed, and the people in the room can be seen by the victim's families, by the inmates' families, and by the media. Protecting the anonymity of members of the execution team is extremely important. They are subject to all kinds of pressures if their anonymity is not protected. So instead of staying in the room, they go again behind a one-way mirror in an adjacent room where they have an extremely good line of sight to the IVs. This is actually covered in the trial record in this case that they do have a good line of sight. And it's not... Nothing really changes because they go into another room. Uh, pages 210 and 286 to 287 of the Joint Appendix 
is where there is testimony that the people in the adjacent room do have a good view of the IV lines. And the executioners are also not visible to the public? Correct. There was a finding that the second drug serves no therapeutic purpose. That's correct. That's we, we don't quarrel with that. The purpose it serves is a purpose of dignifying the process for the benefit of the inmate and for the benefit of the witnesses. I, the Chief Justice said, isn't there going to be litigation against another protocol as soon as it's adopted? And yes, Mr. Verrilli will say that's silly to protect the dignity of the inmate. That argument will fail. But the history of death penalty litigation suggests that the next advocate who comes along representing an inmate will say the one-drug protocol is no good because it doesn't do enough to protect the dignity, or the two-drug protocol is no good because it doesn't do enough to protect dignity. With respect to the time it takes to carry out an execution and whether that's a legitimate consideration, I actually invite the Court's attention to one of the briefs, amicus briefs filed in support of petitioners, the Human Rights Watch brief, which in turn cites a decision of the U.N. Human Rights Committee, the ENG, NG case. First, which says, that if we held that that justification was insufficient to justify this protocol, it's hardly likely we would hold that it's so serious and make the whole procedure unconstitutional. I'm not sure I follow the question. The, the interest in, in protecting the dignity of the, of the inmate and of the observers is, is the justification for the second uh, drug. Yes. If we held that that, in, in, that ju- justification is insufficient to justify the protocol, how could we ever hold that that justification is so serious as to make the whole procedure unconstitutional? Well, I'll tell you, frankly, how you could hold that. What will happen in the next case is they will say, this issue wasn't raised in the trial court in Kentucky. Therefore, the Supreme Court decided this case on an inadequate factual record, and therefore, the Court should take a new look at it because life and death are at stake. And presumably, it would depend upon whatever new alternative the the, uh, plaintiff in that case proposed. Correct. If the standard is truly eliminating all unnecessary risk of pain, then anything that is not the single optimal standard is unconstitutional. And the states cannot do what they've done for the last 220 years, which is use different protocols at different time and work to improve their protocols. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Engler. Mr. Gar. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioners ask this Court to invalidate a method of execution that everyone agrees is entirely pain-free when followed, and to order the State of Kentucky to adopt a method that has never been used in any execution and is out of step with the laws and practice in every death penalty jurisdiction in the United States. The proposed constitutional standard that petitioners say requires this extraordinary result has several fundamental flaws. First, it is at odds with this Court's precedents establishing a substantial risk threshold for claims of future injury in the Eighth Amendment context, and this Court's cases holding that the added anguish caused by the negligent, accidental, or inadvertent infliction of pain is not the unnecessary infliction of pain prescribed by the Eighth Amendment. Justice Marshall wrote that for the Court in the Estelle versus Gamble opinion on page 105, and this Court has reiterated their principle that negligent, accidental, or inadvertent infliction of pain, however strong or anguishing, is not prescribed by the Eighth Amendment. What what do you say to the the response, which I think was in the briefs, that the the substantiality requirement has been derived in in the course of of conditions of confinement sort of litigation? And and we we really should regard execution as as sort of a a separate subject for purposes of coming up with a standard. What what do you say to that? A, A few things. We're here today in this Section 1983 action because this Court and the Hill case and the Nelson case analogized method of execution claims to conditions of confinement claims insofar as these claims are not directed to the punishment itself but to the manner in which punishment is implemented or carried out. So this Court itself, under the Hill and Nelson case, put these types of cases into the conditions of confinement. Well, we, I mean, we, we did for purposes of, of making a, a habeas 1983 right. distinction, but I'm, is, is, is the distinction supportable uh, when, when we come down to the question whether there should be a, specific, a standard specific to, to execution as opposed to other 
conditions? I don't think it is, Justice Souter. The, the substantial risk standard that the Court has applied in the Farmer versus Brennan case and the Helling versus, uh, Helling versus McKinney case applies to conditions of confinement claims where inmates face the risk of an excruciating pain or even death. If the risk, if the standard that the Court applies to someone who is forced to spend uh, to, to live with a five-pack-a-day smoker is substantial risk, even though that person faces the risk of developing lung cancer, which I think everybody would agree is an excruciatingly painful death, then I'm not sure why the Constitution would place any different standard with respect to the types of claims at issue in this case. Is there any comparative element in the substantial risk standard if, if it were clearly established, undisputed, that there was an alternative method that was much less risky uh, would there be an Eighth Amendment problem if the state or the federal government nevertheless persisted in using uh, a method that was inferior? We think that that could be part of the analysis, that you would look to other feasible, available alternatives, although I would say if that's that — part of the analysis, this never ends. Well, well Justice If that's part of the analysis, there will always be some claim that there's some new method which has been devised, and once again, executions are stayed throughout the country. And we agree with that, and that's why we think that petitioner standard is wrong. It's going to lead to endless litigation in a regime in which there is no finality. The other point I wanted to make in response to Justice Salito is that as a threshold matter, this Court's case is establishing that you have to show, with respect to the method you're challenging, a risk that is more than the risk of negligence or accident in the method that's being carried out. And, and again, Estelle versus Gamble establishes that. Farmer versus Brennan reiterates that. Others. Your standard is, is that there has to, well, don't let me misphrase it for you, but there have to be a, are there obvious available alternatives? Well, the way that we've described it, Justice Kennedy, is that there has, you have to show a substantial risk uh, that the method you're challenging would impose a considerably greater degree of pain than other available feasible alternatives. But to get into that kind of comparative inquiry, we do think that you have to get over the first threshold established by this Court's cases, that you're arguing about something other than the accidental or negligent infliction of pain. And we don't think petitioners in this case have even gotten over that hurdle. So, so your threshold one is the only safeguard you have against Justice Scalia's concern against endless litigation? That, that would Does your threshold two do the same thing? Well, the threshold two would as well, because w- once you're into that kind of comparative inquiry, uh, you still would have to take a careful look at the feasibility of the other alternative. And no one has ever tried the one-drug alternative. Justice Breyer, you're right. We don't know whether it's going to work in practice. Yeah, those those who, who oppose capital punishment entirely across the board are quite willing to take a careful look at everything. And, and they're quite willing to take a careful look at other alternatives. I mean, that, that, that's the problem. If, if we come up with a decision that requires a careful look, in every case, whenever there is a newly developed method of execution, the, the, the problem will always be before us, and executions will always be impermissible. And, and, and we agree with those concerns, Justice Scalia. I want, I want to be clear. Our standard is not a least risk scan. Standard. You have to say, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know if substantial is the right word to capture it. Perhaps the right word is, is there a significant risk that could be easily averted? And what I'm worried about here is do we or do we not send it back? I'm quite honestly disturbed by the fact that in this Netherlands euthanasia report, they both recommend pancurium, and they also say that the thiopentol alone doesn't work, not even in grams of three doses in all cases. And that is the evidence. But they think the contrary. That is the evidence. There is uncertainty here. Should we send it back? for consideration of all these things in a more full hearing under a standard that does allow comparisons with other methods, not too fine a comparison, but at least a practical comparison. And the answer is no. First and foremost, they had an opportunity to develop the one-drug alternative below. They made no effort to present any evidence on that. The record is completely undeveloped, and typically this Court doesn't uh, allow people to go back and relitigate a case again. Uh, yeah, but if, secondly, if we don't do something like that in this case, Mr. Gar, another case is going to come along, and we're going to be right back here 
uh, a year from now or 18 months from now, and wouldn't it be better to get one case litigated thoroughly and get the, get the issue decided rather than simply wait here for another one to wend its way? We think that this Court should decide the issue, and we think it should decide it by saying that petitioners have not established a constitutionally significant Sure, but risk. if we decide it on that basis, the next petitioner is going to say, I'm coming into court with evidence that these other people, that these people did not present. And therefore, we're going to have a new case and a new round of litigation. Uh, and I think that the, 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 what's disturbing Justice Breyer is disturbing me and others is, we, we want some kind of a definitive decision here, and it seems to me that the most expeditious way of getting it, if comparative analysis is appropriate, and I will be candid to say I think it is, is to send this case back and say, okay, do a comparative analysis, make the findings, and we will then have a case that, in effect, will resolve the issue as much as one case can ever well, well, let me make two responses to that, if I could. First, again, we don't think that petitioners have shown anything close to a substantiality of risk that would get you into that comparative analysis here. And second, a virtue in allowing um, — there's a virtue in not going further in this case and allowing the states themselves to continue to assess this matter. The states have continuously reassessed and made and repeated modifications to their lethal injection protocols. Three states within the last years have undertaken major internal reviews of the three-drug protocol, California, Tennessee, and Florida. They've all concluded that additional safeguards were warranted, but that it was You say that substantial, that, that comparison with other possibilities is not necessary so long as the only risk that is coming is a risk of negligence or improper uh, execution of what, of what the uh, protocol requires, right? That, that would be the, the you, you would say that so long, so long as the only risk comes from negligent application of the protocol, no comparison is required. Yes. Uh, yes. And, this, and, that's and if we decided that, if we decided that if this protocol is, is properly executed, it does not create a substantial risk, that would be the end of the matter, wouldn't it? That would be the and end of the matter. We would not have another case in front of us next year. That's that, that, that is probably true. There, there, there's no short, shortage of imagination on the death penalty advocates that have brought these types of claims. But a decision along those lines would go a great way to, to providing greater clarity and certainty in this area. Mr. Gar, would you explain to me why the federal government has picked five grams instead of three? May I answer yes. the question? Uh, yes, Your Honor. The, the federal government concluded that that was an appropriate dosage to ensure a deep consciousness uh, among the condemned inmate. Uh, other jurisdictions have picked three grams, and, and I, I would say that the federal government is, is currently considering whether five or three is, is the correct dosage. But the federal Did government. Did you mean to say deep unconsciousness or? Unconsciousness, yes, to render the, the inmate deeply unconscious for a matter of hours. That's established by the record. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Garr. Uh, Mr. Verrilli, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The risk here is real. That is why, in the state of Kentucky, it is unlawful to euthanize animals in the way that Kentucky carries out its executions. And that's true not just with respect to the use of pancuronium. Kentucky also says that one cannot use anything other than barbiturate, one cannot use potassium, unless someone trained in ensuring effective anesthesia is participating in the process. And what that is is a marker that this is a real danger, sufficiently real, that it's not tolerated with animals. Now, with well, respect but the, to the anesthesia concern, of course, is you don't want to kill the person when you're administering just anesthesia in a surgery. And so you would want somebody trained there to ensure that you could bring them back if anything uh, went wrong. But, that concern but, is not present here. Well, well, nor is it present with respect to euthanizing animals. And nevertheless, it's the danger of the, euth of the anesthesia going wrong and that there being a torturous pain inflicted that has led veterinarians, after careful consideration, to say you've got to have somebody in the process who is trained in monitoring anesthetic depth. And, and Justice Breyer, if I could refer back to your Netherlands point, my understanding is that in the Netherlands there is a doctor present who is trained in, the, in anesthesiology who administers this whole process, and so the risk is dramatically different in a situation where you have that trained person there than the situation we have in Kentucky. Now, with respect to the other states, 
uh, that, that and the other and the other so-called botched executions that my friend Mr. Englert referred to. It's just not right to say that they were all about cut downs and small problems. The record findings of fact in the Morales case were that with respect to the 11 lethal injections studied there, there were evidence that six of the 11 were inadequately anesthetized, from which one can readily infer they would have suffered grave pain. And indeed, the state's expert in that case admitted that it was likely that one of the 11 was not adequately anesthetized at the time that the pancuronium and the potassium were put into the system. Similarly, in the Brown case in North Carolina, of the five lethal injections studied there, the evidence credited by the district court was that with respect to four of them, the, the uh, condemned inmate was on the gurney, gasping, struggling, not the kind of involuntary twitching that Mr. Angler was worried about, but clear evidence that the anesthetic is not working. Now, with respect to the facts in this case, with respect to the lethality of thiopental, at, pages four, at page 492 of the Joint Appendix, Dr. Heath says that thiopental will be lethal by itself in three grams. At page 494, he says, indeed, it will be lethal by itself in virtually every case at two grams. At page, <coughs> and at page, uh, forgive me, I don't have the page number reference, reference handy, but Dr. Dershowitz, the state's expert, says the same thing. Now, the reference that Mr. Englert referred to at page 499 is where Dr. Heath is being asked the question of, well, uh, would you expect death to occur when three grams are administered? But he's being asked a series of questions about its administration in a surgical procedure in which you're using ventilators and other measures to try to keep the person alive. And he said, in that setting, the answer is no. So that's just not a fair representation of the record at all. Now, with respect to the question of whether we ought to analogize this to uh, the deliberate indifference standard in conditions of confinement cases, it seems to me that there's a critical and fundamental difference here, which is that this, the Commonwealth of Kentucky is making a deliberate choice here. You can finish your sentence. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. A deliberate choice here to use chemicals that create this danger, and given that it has done so, it ought to have the commensurate obligation to take the reasonable steps necessary to obviate the risk. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.